This is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. It's talk 12, Action Design. Okay, so there's quite a lot to talk about on this. I'm just going to plow in to the subject. What we're going to be looking at is different forms of civil disobedience, um, direct action, civil resistance, whatever words you want to use, and look at the actual on-the-ground designs. I want to just look at the run-up to these activities, and I'm using a descriptive approach, just in case someone doesn't like me who's listening to this. <laughs> I'm not saying one of these things should or shouldn't happen, uh, but what we've already gone through is this timeline, and the standard routine is People go out leafleting, stalls, uh, social media, local social media, have the recruitment meeting. People go to a social. They do a MVDA, non-violence training, civil disobedience training. They get into an affinity group, a small group that they're going to take action, and they go out into the road, whatever action they're going to take. <clears throat> and then there's a follow-up process. So one of the things to understand about action design is there's always conflicting logics. It's very difficult and in principle impossible to get an optimal design because there's different priorities. The priorities for the mobilization people, for instance, can be different from the priorities for the action people. So with the mobilization people, they are going to want the actions to happen regularly and as soon as possible because of the attrition of people, uh, the inertia rather, of people dropping out. So for instance, if you start a campaign and it's the action is four months ago, uh, as a general rule, people are going to go, okay, fine, and then they're going to forget about it or drift it off by the time the actual day comes. The optimum time is approximately four to five weeks from start to finish. I mean, maybe less. So you have the leaflet and your meeting and your MVDA training and the following week your interaction. So the traditional design, in so much as there has been one, has been problematic because what the action logic is, is we want 1,000, 2,000 people. To get that within four weeks is obviously really problematic within a limited number of mobilizers. So you can see there's a little bit of a tug, tug here. The action people want something to happen, say, every three months and the mobilization people want things to be happening every four weeks. So let's just hold that in balance as it were. We're not saying one's right or one's wrong, but you can see what we're working at. One design that is more uh, directed towards the mobilization logic is the following, which is to have a meeting and then a social and then a meeting and then a social and an MVDA on a Saturday, and then straight into action. And all those meetings and socials ideally happen in the same location, in the same uh, venue. So the nice thing about this is you focus on a section of a city and you plow away at it for four weeks, and it builds momentum in that area of the city. People get leaflets twice, or they see the posters in the streets, you know, four or five weeks running. So it's the same as a Coca-Cola advert or whatever. You know, you see it lots. And, and when you've seen something five or six times, you go, actually, I'm going to do that. 
Plus, you've got the momentum effect of people bringing their friends and their friends and their friends. Um, by the time of the four weeks, you've got your 40, 50 people prepared to do this act of civil disobedience. And then they're straight into action. They don't have to wait around for two or three months, as we've just discussed. So that's something that's gaining ground, as it were, in terms of, of a design. Um, yeah, and then once people have done the action, we've discussed this, obviously the action is embedded in this mobilization community support system, what's happening before it and straight afterwards, people are having a debrief and then they've got options to uh, commit to another date of action and help with mobilization. So you've got this circular dynamo system, as it were, where it's going into action, then back into mobilization, into action, and people rotate around these different roles. The last thing to mention, which we may discuss at a later point, is the money issue. So assuming there is money available, then people who are uh, got limited incomes, uh, students or people uh, who are unemployed or whatever, uh, they can get subsidized and get subsidized by the group itself, i.e. the people who've got more money in the affinity group help out the people that have got less. So you've got that solidarity at a sociability level or there's some sort of central fund. All right. So let's move on then to thinking about this uh, preparation into action in a little bit more detail. Um, so what we've got here, thinking about it, is you've got the meeting, and then you've got the social, and then you've got the nonviolence training. Now, one of the logics here is that people make commitments gradually, and sometimes it speeds up towards the end of the process. But first of all, they might go to a meeting, they've never been involved in anything political, anything activisty. You know, it often happens they've just picked up a leaflet because they're genuinely worried about the climate situation and what have you. And then they go, well, for reasons X, Y, and Z, they're not wanting to be in an arrest situation. So then you can give them some support role. Now, there's two, two things to be said about support roles. You know, number one, you're going to be in the physical vicinity of uh, people being arrested, maybe your legal observer, or, you know, you're going to drive people back from police station or variations on the theme. So you're exposed to the activities from a proximity design point of view, that's going to potentially lead to those people going, actually, I could do this because I've seen other people do it who are like me and I've seen it in actuality. You know, it's not an ungrounded fear situation anymore. So the next time they can move into a uh, non-violence action role. Um, the, other, the other slight change is a lot of the non-violence training, for good reason, can take a whole day. The downside of that, of course, is that a lot of people don't have a whole day, at least they're not committed enough at the beginning of the process, or they have to move, you know, travel to a city, to get the training, all of which is bad proximity design, right? The ideal thing is people go to the social three days later on a Saturday, there's a training and it's in their local community centre or wherever. So another thing that can be innovated, which you know, has its pros and cons, 
noticed instead of having an eight-hour MPDA training, you can have a three-hour one, which is one evening. So the plus side of that is it's good proximity design. Uh, people get gain momentum. They've been to the recruitment meeting. They've had the social. And now they're going on to MBDA altogether. It's on a Thursday night. The downside, of course, is that three hours is arguably not enough time to ensure nonviolent discipline. However, there is data out there that shows that as long as the people aren't going to be involved in high high stakes nonviolent action, in other words, it's unlikely that they're going to be subject to violence by the police or whatever, then it's pretty much solid. But it's something to think about. So just to make this obvious, this session is not about, hey, guys, you know, you've got to do this or you've got to do that. I'm, what I'm doing is taking a descriptive approach of a whole bunch of different designs. And you're going to, as a designer, you know, use the different logics according to the various contexts you're in to design things which are going to optimize the probability of success. All right, so let's take another deeper dive into this. Um, one of the key concepts in action design is the arrest line, or at least as far as I'm concerned it is, in so much as that's a phrase I use. But it's something that's considered, maybe people use different phrases around, around the world. But one of the biggest considerations, obviously, is what's going to happen when people do something. So disruption is not totally coincidental with arrestability. For instance, a normal demonstration, for the sake of argument, is disruptive to a certain extent. But you would hope, at least in most places, at least some of the time, a demonstration is not going to lead to arrest or is not a material chance of that, a large a chance of it. So one of the designs here is to go up to the arrest line but not over it. And the advantage of that is you can say to lots and lots of people, if you do this form of disruption, then... Um, you know, never say never, arrest could happen, but uh, it's unlikely. And and so lots of people will engage in it, knowing that they're still going to get to work on Monday morning or get back to see their kids and all the rest of it. So this is very much a matter of changing the elements in an activity. So what does that mean? What, let me take you an example. Let's take a march. So there's a march, and then there's a slow march, and then there's a very slow march, and then there's a march that's not moving. So at some point, that becomes arguably illegal. In other words, if it's not moving, then technically it's a block, and you're blocking the road, which technically is illegal. If it's a normal march, which is having a demonstration, it's more or less obviously legal. So there's a gray area between the two. So historically like action design in civil resistance episodes, for instance, is all about messing around with this, uh, you know, cat and mouse approach with the authorities in terms of what can be done to maximize disruption without excessive risk. So a classic example of this, uh, I use this a lot when I'm telling people about this one, is Alexandria in 2012. So I've mentioned the Egyptian revolution a few times. And what I want to specifically talk about here, you know, I don't want to be in a big discussion about whether it was a good idea and why it didn't last and all the rest of it. I'm just using it as an example of how disruption can happen in a 
highly authoritarian context. So if people went on a demonstration in Alexandria, in Egypt at that time, there's a fair probability that people would be arrested. And if they're arrested, there's a fair probability that they would be tortured. So if you want lots of people to participate, you want to do something that causes disruption, it's going to get in the media, but it isn't actually a march. So what they did, um, broadly speaking, is there was a long street in Alexandria, and I think it was every five metres, every five or ten metres, Someone stood still and they wore black. And an add-on is they could have, have a sign. Um, and the police came along, and to quite a long story short, the police were not sure whether this constituted a collective act or not. They weren't sure whether it was a demonstration or not. It was new, it was novel, and the consequence was no one was arrested, to my knowledge. So you can see how that gets the best of both worlds. Loads of people participate. You know, it's in all the media around Egypt. And they got away with it, inverted commas. So the general approach here is is designing things. What civil disobedience design is all about is creating a lose-lose for the authorities. A lot of people who get into civil disobedience, they don't really understand lose-lose dynamics. They think, we're going to win or the authorities are going to win. It's like, no, whatever the authorities do, they're going to lose which is one of the reasons, like, I'm quite relaxed, you know, someone from the government was listening to this podcast, they're not going to learn very much. They're, all they're going to learn is that as long as people are, understand the theory of design, um, they're in lose-lose situations. It's not obvious what they should do. If they let the demonstration happen, then they lose because, you know, lots of you get publicity for doing a slow march, for instance. If they start arresting people, and I've just been told today it's been a slow march and two people were arrested, then they're going to look pretty like silly because they just arrested people on, on a march. So it's not obvious, listening to this, what they should do, what they shouldn't do. It is obvious to a civil disobedience designer what, they sh- what you should do, which is you use your data and you look and see what is the most likely probability of various different options, and they choose, obviously, the one that's least suboptimal, as you might say. All right, so let's let's develop this march idea. I mean, marches, you know, in the old-fashioned sense, are a bit of a dead duck, as I've been saying for years. And you know, a lot of my research was on initially about persuading people marches are a bad idea. However, as you approach a more repressive regime, and classically, this has been in, happened in the global south, marches are forms of civil resistance in themselves, and increasingly in the Western world, as as authorities become more authoritarian, like in the UK, the march re-emerges as an act of civil resistance as opposed to um, just a performative exercise. Um, so let's see how another, you know, edgy design, which goes up to the edge of arrestability, for instance, is, is OK, you have a march and then you have an assembly. So you go to local parks, split people up into groups of eight, People uh, download some video from social media. Then they discuss why they got involved in, uh, you know, why they came on the march, what they were concerned about, cost of living, climate crisis, whatever. And then they have a bunch of pathways, give a donation, you know, help with leafleting in their town, but also going to civil disobedience training. So the civil disobedience training is then in situ. They go to a part, part of the park. Maybe a civil disobedience training is pretty rudimentary. You know, it's like 15 minutes, maybe half an hour. 
and then they go to get up, they go to local bridges, there's some momentum about it, it's good proximity design, they're all full of enthusiasm, they've met some nice people, they're pissed off with the whole situation. They go on the bridges, they didn't think they were going to get arrested, but they now they are. And and suddenly a thousand or two thousand people are integrated into an arrestable scenario or semi arrestable scenario from just setting out that day to go on a march. Now, often this happens spontaneously, historically. You know, one of the main ways in which revolutions start or social uprisings is there's a march, and then the authorities, being the bright sparks that they are, decide to get a little bit enthusiastic and kill some people or hit people on the head, and and people get really mad, and then they lose control, and off it goes. Um, you know, Peterloo, whenever it was, 2014, you check that out, you see that that was like a bad, a bad situation. Um, okay, so let's do a slight other variation on the theme. So what we're noticing here is because of sociability dynamics and herding dynamics, when people enter a crowd, there's a certain element of mass psychology. And this is quite a politicized area, like people in the 19th century are saying, you know, when people get in crowds, they become like the devil and they bring down the social order. And then there's other people, you know, more left-wing people saying, when people get in crowds, they become really clever and courageous. You know, both, you know, who, I'm not going to be talking about that. What I want to be talking about is, not that it's not interesting, but from a design point of view, what you're looking at is how you can micro-design a march so people of their own free will, in inverted commas, in so much as that's a useful phrase, decide to engage in civil resistance. So we've already had this notion that people get together in small groups, they then freely decide to go to civil disobedience training, then they freely decide uh, to engage in, in some low level of disruption, like blocking bridges or such like. So something similar can happen uh, in a proactive sense, in a pro-design sense, by moving the march through different forms of um, of disruption, which is to have a march which then changes its format during the march. Okay, so you're on the march and it's a conventional march going down the road. And then the stewards decide to take everyone through a department store. Let's say it's 200 people on the march. So you go through the department store. You know, there's nothing illegal about that. It's open. People can go in it. You go through it. You've got your banners and things. Maybe someone's making a little bit of noise. Then you go out the other side. And you might think, well, so what? You know, it's hardly a big political action. No, it is a big deal. The reason it's a big deal is because it builds up adrenaline, builds like connection between people. It's a little bit transgressive. And it's moving people along that transgression line, what they're comfortable with. And it's creating this, you know, willingness to move on to the next step, as you might say. So a next step, there's nothing like set about this, right? There's variations on the theme. So the next step is you get to the central, central square, maybe there's a thousand people, you know, people have come from different directions. And this is going to sound really weird, uh, but you'll all engage in this hokey, Cokey thing, right? I'm not going to sing it to you, but I think you hopefully some people know what this is, right? So it's a song, and everyone runs into the middle, everyone holds hands, everyone runs into the middle of the square and then runs back again and does various things 
and it's like ridiculously like stupid in a way. But again, this is not about reading books on politics. It's about the sociability dynamics leading to mass empowerment. Okay, so once people are doing that, according to my one of my designer friends, Dan. Hello, Dan, if you're listening to this. <laughs> you can blame it on Dan if it doesn't work. But I think it's interesting as a principle of the design is interesting because what he would say, if I understand you correctly, is by that time, everyone, everyone's ready for anything, believe it or not. You know, they've been through the department store, they've played some games in the central, you know, the central square of the capital city, and now they're ready to go and sit somewhere because they are sort of enveloped in this madness of the crowd, as the phrase goes. Now, there's lots of, you know, there's lots of stuff and studies and books and what have you on crowd behavior. And a lot of it is quite criticized in the sense that right-wing people go, you know, madness of the crowds, they do terrible things, they end up killing people and blah, 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 and bring down civilization. And then there's other people who go, crowds are great, you know, wisdom of crowds, they empower, get them power, they bring down governments, all good. So I'm not going to make any, like, necessary comments on that. What I'm going to say is we shouldn't underestimate the way in which crowds can develop empowerment dynamics relatively quickly through proactive design. So the examples I've given you, you know, through small group, uh, uh, breakout groups, assemblies, nonviolence training, or through uh, escalation of transgressive actions from things that are quite silly or in- inconsequential through to the main deal of blocking bridges or whatever. Now, the thing, if you're going to be smart about this, is it's not about what people do. It's about what the stewards do. The stewards are basically the, um, they're the, the key determinant of success in terms of mass behavior. They maintain nonviolent discipline. They know, tell people where to go. They explain what's going on. In other words, you need to spend a lot of time recruiting them and then briefing them and making them confident so they have to undergo role-playing so they can shout to people, you guys, get over there, you guys over here, that's what's happening next, let's go, guys, you know, all this sort of stuff. So it doesn't come naturally. Most people, particularly soft-spoken, actively start people, are not very good stewards because they're too, like, nice. Stewarding, obviously, you don't want to start shouting at people in an unpleasant way, but it's all about being assertive, and people want to know what's happening. So as a general rule, people aren't going to take it badly. They come in a march. They want to know what's happening. And the stewards come up and they're wearing, you know, some sort of bib or whatever. And they say, right, this is what we're doing next. You know, we're going to go through Harrods and um, we're going, coming out the other side. Uh, thanks very much. That's it. Here's the door. Off you go. Thanks very much. You know, OK, we're now going to the bridges. Yeah, we're going to sit down for 10 minutes, but don't panic. We're going to be getting up again. It's just a one-off sit down. And then they've done that and then they go off and have an assembly. So the the stewards need to understand clearly what's happening when, and then there needs to be a functional hierarchy in the sense that several of the stewards are, are head stewards or whatever euphemism you want to call it, and they are all in touch with each other and they coordinate. So yes, if this sounds like semi semi like a nonviolent army routine, it is, except it's totally nonviolent, but it has a similar sort of construction. All right, well, let's get on to the actual what do you do stuff. 
So again, I'm not going to be sitting here um, going, oh, the best thing to do is to block motorways, or the best thing to do is you know sit on a railway line. What I'm going to do is briefly go through what activities people have done in a descriptive way, and I'll indicate a few pros and cons, as you might say, in, in terms of contextual uh, matters. So in no particular order. Oh, yeah. So let's just acknowledge, first of all, that the strike has been the single most successful act of civil resistance or civil disobedience, insomuch that it used to be illegal. And that was withdrawing labor, obviously, from an employer. Similarly, have been rent strikes, which are probably going to come back into fashion, as it were, at some point. Similar idea, critical mass of people not paying the rent, critical mass of people not, um, uh, you know, not going to work. Everyone's sort of pretty familiar with that. How we want to construct various forms of physical disruption is what I would call a social strike. In other words, it's the social, it's the social space, society itself, disrupting society, disrupting the political space in a legitimate sense because it's a democracy and people get pissed off and they need to express themselves and they have rights. They have rights not to have their children thrown into climate chaos, for instance. So we shouldn't like juxtapose this as some ahistorical situation where strikes are fine and social strikes aren't fine. You know, until relatively recently, in most countries, strikes were actually legal. And it's quite possible that social strikes in the next 10 to 20 years will become legal, right? There's nothing pre-established about this. So let's start with motorways because it's quite a main scenario. So if you're listening to this, you're probably aware that people sitting on motorways know, you know, started a little bit with Black Lives Matter and I think maybe various other places, but small groups of people go into the motorway. It's highly transgressive. Uh, they glue themselves on. It's disrupting the public. We've talked about that. It gets the public to talk to the public. Everyone's talking about it down the pub and what have you. And there's a variation of theme where a few people do it or thousands of people do it. So as an example, I think last year in Serbia, 20,000 people or thereabouts went on the motorways, I think it was two weeks running, uh, protesting about new uh, mineral rights, the country being opened up to big multinationals, Chinese companies and what have you. They weren't going to have that for lots of reasons you probably are aware of. And over two weeks, the government reversed their uh, policy. Okay, because it was massively transgressive and it was high participation. No big surprises, assuming you've been paying attention. <clears throat> Other forms of transport can be blocked, like motorways. So some people in the Netherlands, they sit on, uh, sit on the railway. There's coal going from Holland, from the Netherlands through to Germany. You know, they get arrested. Then other people come onto the track. And, and then other people and what have you can see how that can be built up. And then what just the oil has done is um, oil refineries, the choke points of the distribution of oil. So that's that's good if you can get to a critical mass, i.e. that the um, that oil runs out in the pumps, but it's not directly associated with the public. Um, so arguably. Uh, well, there is data to show that the public isn't that bothered about it. What the public's bothered about is what disrupted the public, as we've discussed. <clears throat> Moving towards like cities more generally, 
there's obviously the classical thing is what so what, what um, Extinction Rebellion did in 2019, which is 10,000 people go to a city and they stay there for 10 days and they block five or six areas. Now that relies upon them being able to camp in that city without being disrupted, or if not, they're going to need somewhere to stay. So initially, that was quite an easy design because the police weren't using force to disrupt people. But as you're probably aware, and as is the case in many places, if it's only you know two or three thousand people, they're more likely to be moved on. There is a critical mass, a tipping point, of course, where that becomes impossible, like in Tahrir Square in 2012 when there's you know half a million people two or three hundred thousand people that's it it's game over effectively for the regime because the police aren't going to be able to move that or if they are they're going to risk some massive repression backfiring event another variation on the theme is i think this happened in santiago in 2012 or thereabouts uh, around austerities lots of people get in their cars and they just drive slowly around the city and it gradually grinds to a halt so the good thing from a disruption point of view on this is it's a city it's going to be in the media that's where the media are that's where the elites are and there's going to be loads of publicity about it because no one can get out and do stuff um so within that i'm not going to talk about it in great detail but you can get more details from you know a22 projects about what multiple blocks look like blocking in particular points like roundabouts or um, where there's a big flow of traffic and um, um, yeah critical mass points where there's so many blocks that it creates a gridlock system and then it exponentially increases around the city so those are all those are all the standard forms of civil resistance, as you might say. We've already dealt with um, marches moving slowly and sitting down, so I won't say any more about that. And the last thing to mention is putting paint on buildings. So putting paint on buildings is highly transgressive, but the downside of it is, again, you're doing bad things to bad people and the public isn't going to be that interested. So unless you've got hundreds and hundreds of people doing it and you're going to be doing it for weeks on end, it's not necess- it's not going to get to that point of that tipping point that you're looking for. All right, there's what I'll just talk about at this point is one of the logic dilemmas here is between secrecy and openness. So We'll be discussing this in a more structural and philosophical level right through these podcasts. But on a sort of technical level, um, the assumption I'm working on is everyone understands that sociability and nonviolence require an open culture. And there's lots of practical reasons, uh, which I'll talk about in the next session, why this works. However, there is the obvious logic that if people know exactly where you're going to go on the motorway, for instance, then you're not going to get on the motorway. So from a pragmatic point of view, there is a a balance to be struck between people being secretive in terms of the micro logistics of what's happening, but being open in terms of their mobilization and in terms of handing themselves in afterwards. So for instance, you know, I was involved, I'm just being in a court case, uh, the group of people I was with threw paint on 
four or five different buildings, NGOs, and we wanted to get around four buildings without being stopped. So we didn't. We just left left the place, went on to the next place. But once we'd done the four buildings, then we handed ourselves into the police station. So we had that open ethos. So without getting into the details of why secretness, secrecy is highly problematic, what tends, I will say this, which is what tends to happen is as soon as you go down the secretive logic, which is a very seductive logic, it's like, hey, we can do more if we're secretive, is you, you start losing the dynamics of sociability. In other words, it's very difficult for people to join you because they don't know what you're doing and the people become overbonded, you know, because they start doing more high stakes actions and it's a rabbit hole. It's sort of without realising it, you've sort of lost the broad strategic picture, which is always mass participation, civil disobedience, in order to create structural change. Okay. Next thing, blitzkrieg versus attrition. Okay, so there's different words for this, but what I mean by that is, do you try and do some rapid, you know, one-week affair that brings down the regime in the verticals, or are you looking at doing the same thing over and over again, which grinds down the opposition, the police, the legal authorities, and the government? So. Unsurprisingly, you'll know what I'm going to say. It all depends, okay, <laughs> on the particular context. But let's just look at this, a few examples in terms of design. So doing something really quickly, the Blitzkrieg design, usually relies upon a novelty element. In other words, the authorities haven't seen this happen. So the classic example here is Extinction Rebellion in 2019. So the British police have never seen anything like it. I can tell you that for certain because I was in all the meetings with them. They weren't sure what was going on. You know, we seemed like decent people because we are decent people. We maintained impeccable, you know, non-violent discipline. Um, and as a result of that, they allowed occupations of roundabouts in, in London to go on for five, six, ten days. By the time you got to October, you know, various people had talked to various people in, in the corridors of power, and that wasn't going to happen anymore. So this is a good rule of thumb, which is, which is you've got to keep moving in terms of tactical intelligence. Um, but obviously it worked as because it was all one-off. So there's, there's potentially other things that haven't been tried, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> uh, but if you find something that hasn't been tried then you potentially got a blitzkrieg uh, rapid uh, situation. Now, the classical, the classical routine here, of course, is, is the mass demonstration. The mass demonstration becomes, gets to a critical mass and people come back the following day and it's bigger and the authorities you know, shoot some people, beat people up or arrest lots of people, creates a backfiring effect. You get even more people coming out on the street and after a week, literally, the regime is over. This has happened over and over and over again. So it's what you might call classical civil resistance blitzkrieg design. Um, and you saw it in Tahrir Square, you saw it in 1830. It, it happens all over the place. Okay, so I I'll just spend two or three minutes looking at an actual case study in, in a bit more detail. And that's the Birmingham Children's March 
1963 in Birmingham, Alabama. So as it happens, I'm plowing through a 500-page um, book on this. So it's quite interesting seeing how things change from hour to hour and day to day. And if you do read about these case studies in that level of detail, and you certainly should, you'll see how it's not all neat and tidy. You know, people try tactical things. It works. It doesn't work. It's a hit and miss affair. Sometimes you strike lucky. Sometimes you don't. So, But what, what you see in successful campaigns over and over again is that level of attention to detail that you're not just ambling away into a campaign. You're looking all the time at openings on the basis of the data you receive, maybe a few hours beforehand uh, or maybe the day or so. So you're continually changing and you have this central group who's making these decisions so they can optimize the probability of success. So to cut a bit of a longer story short, what happened here was that they couldn't mobilize like adult black people because... They might lose their jobs and they weren't totally persuaded it was going to work. But So what they did, which happens over and over again in civil resistance episodes, is the people they do mobilize are teenagers, young people, students and such like. And for no other reason that they've got the time on their hands and the consequences are not necessarily that bad for them as opposed to people that are trying to provide for their families and such like. Okay, so... What happened here is approximately 1,500 uh, young people um, came out into the main streets of Birmingham and they were put into, uh, they were arrested in a sort of industrialized sort of way. There was coaches that were, were, were used and such like. And then the following day, because of the backfiring effect, it's momentum, this adrenaline, the sort of mass sociability of being involved in this exciting, transgressive, you know, um, rebellion against racism. Another thousand, two thousand school children, teenagers, students came out. And it keep you know, he kept going day after day. There was one or two breaks, they changed their tactics around, they bust people into the city centre so that they could be outside the stores that they wanted to desegregate. And it was it was overwhelming. And by the time they got, I think it was about seven or eight days in, basically the authorities knew they couldn't win. So they went from, hey, we've had segregation for 90 years. These people aren't going to change anything. We're super confident to, oh, dear, we know we're definitely going to have to negotiate and give ground. And that happened in eight days compared with 90 years. So you can see how if this is a possibility, you've got to go for it because it's nice and quick and it happens over and over again. That said, often and increasingly, it looks like the attrition logic is sort of becoming more prevalent, uh, at least if there isn't a major, you know, triggering ecological crisis or political crisis. So the, the great um, example here, and there's a bunch of them, is the Freedom Riders in 1961. So the Freedom Riders, people went down to Alabama, you know, black and white people on the bus, they were beaten up, put into prison. And after a week or so, it got into what you might call a similar dynamic to a labor strike. You know, the workers are going on strike, the employers are saying no, so they keep going on strike and the employers say no, and boom, 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 keeps going. So what happened once it settled down in the vertical is you had 
three or four times a week, you had people coming from training centers around the U.S. where they'd been trained in civil disobedience. They came down uh, on the buses. They came out the buses. It was all routinized. They were put into prison. And after about 10 weeks, there was about 400 people in high-security prison in Mississippi. Now, the interesting thing about this, which is how attrition works, is at that point, and again, there's a 500-page book on it if you want to read about it, after about 10 weeks, the main guys that were organizing were all stupid depressed because they were going, hang on a minute, you know, we're just building all these people in prison, the American public's against us, we haven't had that much publicity because it got a little bit boring for the press, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, in inverted commas, the government decided that they were going to act. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that was the broad, that was the broad arc. So what this shows you is on, there is a hidden tipping point with an opponent, and they're going to bluff right up to that point. So it's not, you're not going to have data on it. You just have to rely on the theory, if you see what I mean. It's like they're going, no, 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 we're not going to do it, we're not going to do it. And then suddenly, one day, they go, actually, we are going to. And you know that from a theoretical point of view, because you know that basically the costs and the momentum is building, and they're not going to let on because it's a bluff game. Okay, so one of the interesting, you know, the most interesting development over the last two or three years, in my view, is the Insulate Britain campaign of 2021, I think. So that started off, it was going to be a two-week campaign. People were blocking motorways. And as I've indicated in other sessions, people went to uh, rented accommodation afterwards. They built up this great team spirit. And they said, right, we're going back, we're going back. I personally thought, you know, it lasted about two or three weeks, actually lasted seven weeks, and we had to officially stop it, as it were, to regroup. So it could have lasted longer. The point, there's two points here, which is once you have a system on the go and you have enough backup resources to develop it, then it can keep going week in, week out. It could, be, you know, it could go on for half a year, a bit like some labor strikes do. Um, and the second thing which was interesting was it maintained a high level of publicity because it was disrupting the public. So it was a bit like a major strike in the sense that the public's disrupted. So it's always going to get on the news because that's what gets on the news, what disrupts the public. Now, even when, you know, it would have won its demand, who knows? But the, the point I want to communicate here is this is a massively powerful mechanism of levering social power through keeping going, as it were. And this relies upon having a rotation system. Uh, in other words, people come down to the site of disruption and they're there for two or three days, they go back, they recover, you know, they go to work, they make the money, they deal with their domestic situation, and then they come down the next week. So there's a rotation. A little bit, of course, like uh, an army, you know, uh, sim again, these are very similar sort of dynamics. Okay, so I'll just give you a little example from history just to, uh, just to add to this. The Iranian Revolution of 1979, Again, I'm not saying it's a good idea or a bad idea, but in terms of its design, it was really smart in terms of an attrition strategy in the sense that they had a small organizing group which basically told people what to do. And what they did was 
City A would go on strike and there'd be dem- big demonstrations and the army would move in and there'd be a lot of repression. And when it looked like, you know, they were about to get really badly done in, they stopped. They stopped the um, the demonstrations and the civil resistance in that city and they'd go to another city. So then another city would spark up and they'd uh, be, you know, demonstrations, stuff in the streets. The army would reorganize themselves. They'd go to the next city or the next group of cities. They were just about to do them all in, and and then they'd stop. They'd withdraw. So there's a sort of swarming element to it. They sort of withdrew at the point at which they would be defeated. And then it starts somewhere else. So the, the point here is the police force and the authorities do not, as a general rule, unless it's some big authoritarian state, have the psychological and material resources to just endlessly be running around the country, putting things down. At a certain point... The authorities, uh, probably the police or possibly the army, if you're talking about civil resistance in the global south, will go, uh, we're not doing this anymore. So a classic example of this is, I think, 2018 with the demonstrations around diesel prices in France. I think it went on for about 10 weeks. And by the time it got to Christmas, the French police went to the French government and said, if you wanted to go out in January, you want to pay us more money, you want to sort it out. And that's... You know, that was the tipping point. So at the end of the day, we all know it's all about getting to those tipping points. And sometimes it can be through some rapid development, which takes about a week, or it can be something that takes a month, three months or whatever. And you can see the beginnings of attrition, you know, full scale attrition developments in the Western world. At this, at this, this year in 2023, when you've got groups like uh, uh, last generation in Berm- in in Germany, uh, just a oil in the UK, you know, doing slow marches, doing stuff on motorways, and it's got enough resources and organisation and cultural solidity to just keep going. And that doesn't mean someone's on the front line for three months. It means people are rotating, as I've said. All right, so let's move on to something else. Quite a few things to go through here. <laughs> anyway, you want to take a small break? Take a small break. But... Uh, I am now going to go on to cultural design. So I'm going to put my hands up at this point and say, you know, cultural design, for me personally, has not been a big a big thing. By cultural design, what I mean is, is people doing something which disrupts the meaning system of society and it gets massive publicity because it does so. So this is another classic example where our theory of sociability trumps the theory of critical, you know, political confrontation. In other words, it's not doing bad things to bad people. If you want to change opinions in a country, you want to do something that's going to attract people so you disrupt their meaning systems. By meaning systems, I mean, what do they spend most of their time thinking about? What's meaningful for them in terms of, you know, if it gets disrupted, they're going to get upset about it or they're going to give it attention? Well, there's two things. There's sport and there's art. So with a football uh, example, as you may know, uh, several people from just a boil went on football pictures and they tied themselves to the football post. It was quite, the micro design is quite difficult because they, it's easy to get stopped. So there's lots of details and chance. But the upshot of it is, happened several times. I think people did it. A woman did it. Uh, a football, uh, tennis match in, in France. You know, this is something that can rapidly spread around the Western world. And it literally gets millions of views because it's a Premier football match and it's held up for seven minutes. Everyone wants to know why. Um, so this is 
a massive potentiality in terms of extensive influence. In other words, it's not necessarily going to force the government to uh, enact legislation, but it is going to get millions of people talking about it, which is part of the ecology of change. So the other example, as you may know, is throwing, throwing soup, potatoes, whatever it is, over works of art. Now, this is super smart as well, of course, because, you know, the, what was it, the Van Gogh, the Van Gogh episode got 70 million people looking at it. You know, people in California are talking about it. People in China are talking about it. It was a big thing. All it, all it required was two young women to throw, um, throw, um, throw soup over this Van Gogh. There was no permanent damage. But it was a brilliant design. Or, of course, you know, there's always an element of chance in these things. Some of these, some of these episodes haven't got as far as that. Okay. So what's interesting about this, obviously, is the the reach, the reach of getting the um, getting the issue into people's minds. But there's another element to it, which is if you, obviously, you want to be organised. Then you can have a national, international Zoom with leading artists or celebrities or whatever it is, talking about the Van Gogh painting, and you know thousands of people turn up because they've heard about it on social media. They go on the website, and then they go into breakout rooms, and then you're recruiting people for the main show, as it were, the attrition uh, scenario or the speedy scenario, the blitzkrieg scenario. So you can see how these all these things are connected. They're not in isolation. And interestingly enough, in Germany, um, doing art, you know, art installation sort of stuff, throwing, I think it was potato, mashed potatoes, a, a piece of art, you'd think that this would put off artists and they would be horrified. And of course, our theory takes account of that. But most artists, most of the time, are going to go, that's terrible, we love our art. But there's going to be a significant minority of artists who are going to say, actually, the climate crisis and what's going to be happening to young people in Germany is a lot more important than throwing a bit of potato over a piece of art. And they're going to sign a, a document, you know, a letter. I think another artist signed a, a letter in Germany. Now, the point of that is not the letter. The point of it is then those 1,500 artists can be contacted, asked to give money, asked to you know, put the stuff on their social media, has to do civil disobedience. So it opens up uh, the potentiality of getting into that space and getting a whole load of material mobilization from it. So what's, this is similar to the Extinction Rebellion logic, you see, which is the conventional wisdom was, if you're going to do civil disobedience, you just put everyone off. But you've got two data points there. You've got uh, Extinction Rebellion in 2019, and you've got Last Generation in 2022, where Engaging in civil disobedience, which disrupts a particular section of society, actually massively creates mobilization amongst that long tail, as it were, of people in that demographic who actually agree with you. So those 1,500 artists, I can tell you <laughs> with total certainty, there's no way in a million years that they would be signing letters if last generation had you know, done a conference or a press conference or something on why artists should be stepping up. They, it, it just would not have happened. So this is a, the win-win dynamic that you're looking at in the genius, as it were, of civil disobedience design. All right. 
let's widen out again a little bit and look at how how this organization is going to work. I'd like to mention here that mass civil disobedience is it's got a long pedigree. It's not like we're all in, in we're not we're all designing this from a blank slate. For instance, Martin Luther King's operation in the sixties, they talked a lot about creating a non violence army, and that's what they called it, of ten thousand people. And you take those ten thousand people and you go to a city or you do a campaign and one bam, you know, you get the job done. Similarly, you know, the most famous campaign of Gandhi in India, the assault march, involved tens of thousands of people at its peak. And the whole design was this mass mobilization situation. So that's that's what we're looking at is a way of fusing these different tactics, not just to influence the public, not just to get a win from the government, but also, of course, to get the brand out, the the logic of it, and, and attract thousands of people. And thousands of people, we're pretty sure, if they commit civil disobedience, will get legislative change in, in Western democracies. And looking forward towards revolutionary episodes, once you get to 10,000 of the people, then you're looking at some sort of you know, um, regime change, uh, whatever that might be. So we're looking here at relatively small numbers. So attention to detail is what it's all about. So just let's remind ourselves as we come to the conclusion on this, what we're designing is a funnel. Lots of people coming into meetings and engaging in civil disobedience and going up a commitment, uh, a ladder of commitment. Okay. They, they can choose low-level civil disobedience, medium-level, high-level. And as they go through each stage, it's a sort of gamification situation where, where you go to one stage, and once you've done that stage, you can move to the next stage, and then you can move to the next stage. So after the high level of civil disobedience, people progress onto what you might call the next stage. And the next stage is when people will become veterans in the sense of they know a lot about civil disobedience, both viscerally and uh, in terms of general knowledge, and they can become trainers or mentors or overseers of this whole funnel between low, medium and, and high level action. So another element here is that of developing identity. So again, we talked about this. This involves organizing celebrations, ceremonies, rituals. People get a particular badge or ribbon or jersey or something to, um, to acknowledge that they've been arrested, gone to prison, you know, these different points in their development, as it were. There's a flag, there's a symbol. A lot of people have a sort of awkwardness and slight suspicion of this, so obviously it can be overdone, but there is a sweet spot where people do appreciate and respond to this sort of identity formation without it you know, turning into a cult and all the rest of it. And this makes it possible to draw other people in or form coalitions with people who don't particularly want to identify with that, that particular identity. Um, so what you could be looking for, and we're going to be looking at this in more detail, is this sort of coalition ecology where different groups come together 
with a single demand with some basic rules about normal discipline and what have you, but they have their own identities, you know, their own jerseys, <laughs> their own flags and symbols, and they're all coming together. And that's a classical civil resistance scenario. All right, so one more thing before we get to conclusion, which is this notion of the dynamism of the context. This can't be emphasized enough. A lot of people look at civil disobedience design as if it's a static system, you know. This works, that doesn't work. You know, this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. What we have to recognize is that all civil resistance episodes start off generally with a permissive response from the regime. And then that response, as Gandhi predicted, moves into this fight stage, otherwise known as heightened repression. We know because we've already talked about it that repression in and of itself is not a predictor of success or failure because it's intrinsically unpredictable. But what it does mean is you get a bifurcation between two different types of, of activity. A few people do a lot and a lot of people do a little. In other words, lots of people are scared of what the regime is doing due to below the arrest line stuff, demonstrations and such like, and a few people who are prepared to go to prison or, you know, make sacrifices, um, engage in, in, in classical civil disobedience. And the, it's the interaction between those two groups, if you get your proximity design uh, organised, that brings the people out in the street, brings more people prepared to be repressed to get to the tipping point. So as civil resistance increases in the Western world, you're going to see this more and more, and we're already seeing it, for instance, in the UK, where it's almost illegal to go on a march now. So, so we need to be prepared for this in advance, and it looks like you're going to have two groups. You're going to have these groups who will go on slow marches and what have you, and then they will be headhunted or recruited in so much as they're open to it to go and do actions which might put you in prison for months or even years on end. And that's the way it is. And it's not necessarily unsuccessful. In, other, in actual fact, it's arguably more successful to have that high level of repression because most civil resistance works in high repression scenarios for the reasons we discussed, backfiring. So that's one of the central paradoxes of all this. Um, the other thing to say is just to remind ourselves that what leadership means is eight out of 10. So stick that on your fridge. It doesn't mean five out of 10, it doesn't mean 10 out of 10. In other words, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one, going to be one of those people. In fact, you should be one of those people who's basically going to be an organizational role you know, not necessarily like with thousands of people to organize, but it's important that people take the step into leadership functions because leadership is critical to tactical intelligence. In other words, knowing what to do. You can't have loads of people doing their own thing. You can have people doing their own thing within a particular time and space, like you're in this part of this city today and go and block the streets and you decide. But the overall battleground, as you might say, has to be organized by this small group. And if they get arrested or put into prison, there has to be some way in which they are substituted and that's prepared for. 
So, and what you're going for is, you have your design, and my general rule of thumb, as somebody you know, is if I'm advising a group or giving, you know, giving my opinion is, you take your most ambitious, your ambitious scenario, and then you double it, you know, or maybe you triple it. In other words, let's say you've designed, you know, your first, your first civil resistance episode, and people are going to block roads and city acts, you know, for a week. What you want to do is say, no, we're going to do it for three weeks. You don't want to say, oh, we're going to do it for 10, because that's just not credible, right? It's just not going to happen. But three weeks is very possible. And the reason for that is once people get to day three or four or five, they're going to be pretty pumped. And if they've got the leadership to lead them, then they will go, yeah, we're going to come back. We're going to come back. And so it's this sort of sort of rational madness, as, as you might call it, which basically makes civil resistance work. You have people in leadership positions that are mad enough to actually take massive risks, but not so mad that they just do something that's completely incredible and just not going to happen. So it's, that's a difficult balance to get, of course, and you need to think about it a bit. But that's the, the name, name of the game. And other concluding comments, just to reiterate this notion of lose-lose, this is the most super exciting thing about civil resistance from a design point of view, is whoever's listening to this podcast, they're not going to learn anything, <laughs> as I said. So that's why I'm fairly relaxed about it. They're going to look all this up in a book. You know, the literature's out there. The point is, is it's impossible to know how to respond. If you respond by being lenient, then you can have the downfall of the regime. If you respond by repression, you can end up with downfall of the regime. The fundamental issues here are the leadership, as I've just mentioned, whether the cause is objectively good or bad. Is it objectively a just cause? Are people going to come out of the street, as it were? And you've got to keep going. You've got to keep pushing with this leadership behind you. And I'll just finish, I haven't mentioned much about this, but I'll just say in, in that the same thing applies to repression in prison. Like, yes, you know, someone might be listening to this thing. These are terrible people. We're going to put them in prison. But that's a bit of a problem because you put people in prison, they get used to it. You know, I've been sitting here for three and a half months. You know, dare I say it, I'm pretty used to it now. It's like, yeah, put me in prison, whatever, you know. Um, so it, in other words, repression is, to a certain extent, right, only to a certain extent, a social construction. And if, if you play that card too much, then people get used to it. And then what are you going to do after that? You're going to start torturing people, you're going to shoot people. Well, once you get to that stage, you're very much shaking a dice, as every dictator knows, because um, people are just going to come out and come out and come out. Um, the second thing is, is if you start being more repressive and you do put people in prison, like the woman has put into prison for one and a half years, you're likely to trigger this backfiring response. So in that, in that situation, there were demonstrations in lots of cities, and instead of spending one and a half years in prison, she spent one and a half weeks because the authorities weren't stupid. You know, in Australia, reasonably democratic, as you might say, and they thought, no, 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 you know, this, this is not what happens in Australia. People are, are rightfully, you know, up in arms about it, and the woman was out of prison. So never say never, of course, these things can carry on. But it's you can see how this is, this is how the lose-lose situ situation uh, works out. The last example is someone recently, you know, has been told in a trial a sim similar 
the similar sort of dilemmas appear to judges. You know, do you let people talk about climate change uh, or not? So some judges go, you're not going to talk about climate change. Someone talks about climate change. They're done for contempt of court. They're put into prison for eight weeks for telling the jury about climate change. You know, there wasn't that much of an uproar about it, but you're playing pretty close to the edge here if you're um, an opponent, because you know that if you start putting people in prison in a Western democracy for, you know, months on end for daring to talk about the climate crisis in a trial, you're starting to look pretty much like, you know, an authoritarian state, which, of course, is the direction in which we're going. So that's the landscape, okay? And um, you're going to have to think again and again in your leadership group about getting that data and coming to collective intelligence decisions and going for it and keep going. And obviously, that's a lot at the heart of what this revolutionary project is all about. Okay, that's it. Thanks very much. Bye.